I wanted a strong title that would convey the ferocity of what I was seeing. The word for these big whirlpools, um, you know, and and just flipped the L and the E to M-A-L-E, maelstrom, um, to represent it as a as a current, as a as strong currents that are dragging them down, um, causing them to lose who they are as as God created them to be. Like all the locals here, I've had to sell. And if you if you took that story to Afghanistan, where girls at the age of eight were being banned from education, and you showed them Jesus, the rabbi, allowing a woman to sit at his feet, which is language for being a rabbinical student, they could tell you how powerful that story was. And I talk about it this way in the book when I talk about the power of power, that power is a gift and we all have aspects of it um, and it can be used in wonderful ways to empower others. I mean, if, if you look at Genesis 1 to see how God uses his power, it's to empower, it's to cause flourishing, um, you know, it's, 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 and we're supposed to emulate that. Welcome to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones, and the voice you heard in the opening moments of this podcast was Carolyn Curtis James. She is someone who thinks deeply about what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world, and as a cancer survivor, she's grateful to be alive and determined to address the issues that matter most. Her speaking and writing ministry is dedicated to addressing the deeper needs which confront both women and men as they endeavor to extend God's kingdom together in a messy and complicated world. And her most recent book is entitled Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Carolyn, it's very nice to meet you. And uh, thank you very much for doing this interview. Um, You have become uh, an important prophetic voice not only in the advocacy of women in ministry, but in many ways deconstructing gender roles in light of the gospel. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with your work, and, and maybe some who are, how did you end up on this particular calling, this particular road? Maybe give us a little bit of a intellectual autobiography. Well, it started because I had questions of my own, and... Um, you know, growing up in a conservative mm. church, uh, I was told my calling as a woman was to be a wife and mother. So when I graduated from college and there wasn't anyone I wanted to marry, it was like the bottom dropped out. You know, if if a, if a woman is supposed to build her story around uh, her husband and her children and she doesn't have a husband or children... Um, she doesn't have a story and, um, you know, it was, it just landed me in a void and I began to ask questions about God's purpose for me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at Genesis two, the creation of male and female, it's typically discussed in terms of marriage. 
So if you're not married, you're, you're not in that conversation. And, mm-hmm. um, so I went back to scripture to ask questions for myself. Am I, am I in the story? Uh, is God's purpose for me as his daughter, something I can miss or lose or have taken from me or spoil? And, um, and I wanted to ask questions that were universal. I didn't want to just talk about American women. Um, you know, the Bible is, is not an American book. It's a global book. And so that launched me on this quest to say is, you know, does the Bible have a message for women that begins when we begin and, and doesn't expire? And so in Maelstrom, I'm doing the same thing for men because I think we, you know, culturally have definitions where you feel like you're, you're not quite the woman you should be because you don't match the demographic that's put up. And, um, you know, same thing for men. I mean, men get hammered in the church because they're not doing certain things that are deemed more manly and, um, you know, so as I worked on, I mean, most of my work has been about women and, um, you know, I've written five books on, you know, just looking again at the, at the biblical stories of women, um, through the lens of patriarchy, because that's the world those stories are told in. And we often miss that dimension. You know, we just go from, from reading the text to trant to interpreting the text instead of saying, no, this is happening in a, in countries like the Middle East or, you know, places in Africa or India where there's a whole different ethos, a whole different value system. And so that makes the potency of those stories greater than if we just read it as Westerners in, an, in a fairly egalitarian society. So anyway, it was very personal for me in the beginning, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, so it's very exciting. You know, it's been it's it's been uh, amazing, and uh, it's wonderful to see what it's doing for for other women and um, for girls. So it's just yeah, it's a really remarkable and interesting book, and. I have a couple of specific questions uh, we want to ask you, but first I had kind of a biographical question because it sounds like you and your husband, both your husband's a seminary president, right? At biblical seminary in yes. Hatboro, Pennsylvania. And that's probably the seminary that's closest to a meatpacking manufacturing place in the country. I mean, there's a lot of other <laughs> great things you could say about it, but it's right. I remember the first time I visited it. I'm like, Oh, there's the, Hatfield meat thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, what you notice. I guess that says a lot about me. But it sounds like you and your husband have both been on kind of a theological and spiritual journey that's been, that's taken you to different places where, where, where you started um, with convictions and theological positions. I'm wondering, you know, if, if you're in this country and you're a Democrat and you become a libertarian or something, or you're an omnivore, and you become a vegan, you, you don't have to kind of switch your whole social worlds. But oftentimes in religious, Christian religious communities, especially conservative ones, it's almost like if you, it, it's a, there's sometimes an understated mantra that like, we, 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 if you love me, you agree with me. 
So I'm wondering socially, how is that how has that journey impacted you all as a married couple in friendships and church life and just kind of sociologically? What has there been an impact at all from that? Oh my goodness, yes. You know, it it has because um that that mindset exists. I, I think for me, one of the things that I get caught in is the gender debate because I don't identify with either either side, um, you know, the, the complementarians or the egalitarians. And some have been, um, some have been very, um, accepting of what I do. And, and then some have been very hostile. And what, what happens when you don't say I'm one or the other is that whatever, whoever's reading your work thinks you're with the other people, you know, so it, and so sometimes my work is, it's difficult for people to understand. Um, I see the discussion in the church as sitting on a continuum. And, you know, we have the complementarians and the egalitarians who are trying to figure out where is the Christian biblical position on this continuum. But if you take the continuum out to its extremes, you know, at one end you have religious fundamentalists and at the other end you have radical feminists. And, you know, we've sort of carved out this midsection, but we can't agree on where the right spot is. And I think the gospel takes us off of that continuum to a whole different way of being human, of being male and female, um, that we lost in the fall. And, um, and so it's very difficult. We have, we have very strong binary, uh, uh, terms of discussion of gender. And it's very hard for people to think beyond that um, because the, you know, the, it's the turf is so defined. And, and yet I was talking to, I was talking to John Piper and I said to him, if I went to your church or Tim Keller's church or Paige Patterson's church, the line would be drawn for me in a different place. And you're all in, in the same camp, you know, yeah. so where am I? You know, when I try to figure out what what's the biblical position um, and that's and it just, you know, I, I think and I think as far as egalitarians are concerned, often people think if they decide that they are for women's ordination, that that settles the women's thing, <laughs> you know, that that's the end of it. But it's not. It's the beginning of where you, you know, the real work begins and how things change when men and women work together. And what about all the other women in the church? You know, that it's not just about, you know, what is that? Less than 1% of Christian women would fall into the category of women who are ordained. And I want to discuss it for everybody. So, you know, there's, there's been a lot of pushback and, um, uh, a heavy price to be paid for sort of talking about it in a different way. I pre you know, I really appreciate that because I've always thought exactly, exactly how you have constructed that continuum that they end up doing violence to the text. If not, if not the text itself, uh, the gospel, I've often said contemporary discussions about what is Christian and biblical family values are really more like what our second century pagan Roman family values as opposed <laughs> to biblical. And I appreciate the idea that I think the gospel, the living gospel blows that discussion up. And uh, yeah. I, I think that's really a, a wonderful way to talk about that. 
And it sounds like prophetic places can often be lonely places. A place where if if you kind of challenge prevailing uh, wisdom or or lack thereof, uh, that it can be a, a lonely place to be sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have wonderful support. Um, I have friends all over the country who are just incredible to me. But, you know, let me just say, I wouldn't trade this for anything. Um, it has been so life-changing for me. And one of the things my husband and I talked about when we first got married was that we wanted to keep learning and growing and changing and not to, because I had been through some things where, where I learned, um, you know, having grown up in the church and landing in this space where I didn't know who I was or how I was supposed to live. Um, and it, and I felt abandoned by God and, um, you know, coming to the place where I understood that I hadn't been abandoned, that, that this was part of his purposes for me to have this stretch of singleness and, uh, which has proven to be enormously productive in terms of, and my whole ministry has come out of that. Um, but just being, you know, coming to the place where I realized that even though I'd grown up in the church, even though I'd been to, um, you know, Christian college and um, always loved the Bible and everything, that I was totally wrong about what I was thinking about God. Um, it was, it was um, such a wake up call for me to realize I don't know everything and there's more to learn and I and I want to keep learning because it's just it's such an amazing thing when you when you start to see something in a new light or you know when something that you had been confused about gets clarified and you know we're worse when we are in the business of knowing God, we're tackling an infinite subject and we have a whole lot more to learn. And, you know, so for me, the price, yes, there's a, there's a heavy price to be paid for, for the things that I'm doing, but it's, it's totally worth it. So your new book, Maelstrom, uh, Bill and I were talking about this earlier today. One of the things before we talk about the substance, I just wanted to to comment for a second on the form of it and ask a question about it. I really, really enjoyed reading it. And one of the things that struck me is there's a couple writers out there. Amir Slav Wolf is one that comes to mind where he just, he weaves together seemingly seamlessly. I don't know if you can use seemingly seamlessly. That's okay. Grammatically, right? Um, he, biblical interpretation, cultural analysis, personal biography, uh, theological insight and interpretation. And that's how I experienced reading the book. I, 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 it was almost like a, a brilliant kind of, kind of homiletic or preaching style. I mean, I thought, gosh, these would be like, if, if sermons were structured like this, more people would go to church. I mean, it was really a wonderful, uh, it, 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 things really gelled in seamless and interesting ways. I mean, is that a style you've developed? Is it something pretty intentional? Is it just kind of how you write? Because it's a pretty unique gift, I think, to be able to do that. Hmm. Uh, you know, hopefully my my books are progressing as I write, um, as I learn more, and as I 
develop in my own thinking. This one got more into anthropology and sociology than previous books have. Um, but yeah, I think all of those things should be woven together. And, um, and I do think I'm, uh, talking about a hermeneutical tool when I talk about patriarchy um, and how that's that's a piece that gets missed. I mean, we like to talk about archaeology and, you know, uh, customs in the Middle East, but we don't talk about patriarchy as a as a hermeneutical tool. But, you know, one of the simplest examples that that I can give is of Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. And, you know, we do all sorts of really silly things with that text, you know, like, oh, she's having her quiet time or, you know, you shouldn't be so busy that you don't do your Bible reading or, you know, something. (laughs) But it's, it's actually a statement about educating women. And if you, if you took that story to Afghanistan where girls at the age of eight were being banned from education and you showed them Jesus, the rabbi, allowing a woman to sit at his feet, which is language for being a rabbinical student. They could tell you how powerful that story was, mm. that it, you know, it's utterly radical. And, you know, so we don't, it's, it's a, it's boring in our culture, but not when you put it through that lens and you say, you know, the different statements that are made in, in the New Testament about women learning and listening, you know, are all very powerful affirmations of the importance of educating women theologically and, uh, and in every, and every other way. So it's, it's, you know, if you look at the women in the Bible in the old Testament are hysterical because they can't have uh, a child you know, and we talk about that in the ways we would think of it in our culture, where it's a it's it's a terrible struggle. Um, but in the patriarchal world, your job as a woman is to produce sons for your husband, and if you don't, you're in trouble. You know, even today in patriarchal cultures, if you don't produce sons, he will divorce you or add another wife. It's still happening. So it's you know, it just makes the stories leap off the page with a lot more power when we acquaint ourselves with, with that world. And, and, you know, there are lots of books and documentaries now that we have that do that for us. And it, yeah, I think it's a huge missing tool in understanding scripture. Yeah, I think it's a powerful point. You know, no one ever points out, I shouldn't say no one, but when you talk about John four, for instance, in the conversation was a Samaritan woman, it is the longest sustained uh, theological conversation Jesus has with any individual in the entire gospel, um, you know, all the gospel narratives. And you could even argue it's the most respectful one. Uh, Mm. It's the one where he honors his uh, conversation partner probably more than any other conversation Mm. in the entire four gospels. And I think no one ever points that out. And I think that is, has a lot to do with, Exactly what you said, the lenses of patriarchy in our approaching the text. Yeah. 
Yeah, because in that world, it, I mean, they were shocked that his disciples were shocked that he was talking with the women. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, yeah. and she had several other things going against her besides that she was female. But, you know, yeah, it's it's I mean, Jesus is radical in the things that he's doing against the backdrop of his own culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the book for our, for folks who are listening, and I would really recommend picking it up. Um, you can get it on Amazon, but you have to. You have to type Maelstrom, M-A-E-L, because I, yeah, a couple times I did M-A-L-E. So it's funny. Could you, could you say a little bit about the title and the opening image and why you chose it? Because I think it's so poignant and vivid and, and just evocative of – it's an evocative title. So could you say like how you came about it? Yeah. Um, you know, the more I researched what I what is happening with men and boys in today's world, the more I became alarmed and um, and not just for uh, those who are involved in bloodshed and violence or crime or, you know, or, or who are enslaved. But for all of them, you know, I began to see that the fall is so sinister in how it impacts it impacts all of us male and female but anyway as i was researching about men you know it just seemed like nobody's untouched by by this and um i wanted a strong title that would convey the ferocity of what i was seeing and you know i i also wanted something that said male you know and so i took the word for these big whirlpools, um, you know, and and just flip the L and the E to M-A-L-E, maelstrom, um, to represent it as a as a current as a as strong currents that are dragging men down, um, causing them to lose who they are as as God created them to be. Well, Mission Accomplished. I mean, it's a powerful title. And it's a, a great book. One of the things that endeared me to it uh, a lot is I'm a huge Star Trek fan <laughs> and a huge Howard Stern fan. And the intersection of those two is George Takei, who you mentioned the book as an example, as an activist, an example, inspiring uh, Asian Americans as he was this early Asian American actor in a show like Star Trek. He's also, Howard Stern has him on his show, couple times a year as the guest announcer for a week but it made me think of uh one of some of the stuff in the father uh the 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 image about the father wound and and and, and disconnections from fathers i remember uh seeing howard stern he was one of pierce morgan's first interviews uh when he was on cnn and howard stern said that i just felt so disconnected from my father who was a sound engineer and in the car, all he would do is fiddle with the radio and this and the radio. And I thought if I could get in that box, if I could just get in that box, he would love me and he would notice me. So he, he launched this radio career to get his dad's attention. And he says to Pierce Morgan, when I, my father saw my movie and said, son, you, you're a genius. And Stern said, I just lost it. That I, I knew he – and then I, two summers ago, I was listening to an interview he did with Jerry Seinfeld. And Howard Stern has been in therapy – you know, at least twice a week for decades working on this stuff. And he said, Jerry, did your dad ever put his arm around you and tell you uh, that he loved you? No, no one's did. Yeah. He said, no, Jerry, 
there were fathers that did. And it makes a difference when they don't. So could you say a little bit about what inspired you to put, because you even have a powerful story in there about your own husband talking with seminary colleagues, a conversation kind of stopping when they get to father-son relationships. Well, I wanted to talk about different aspects of the maelstrom. So the chapter titles are focusing on different issues that are impacting men and boys. And that's a big one. You know, you, you, um, you find that, uh, that there's this longing that a lot of men have for, for a father figure. And, you know, the previous gener, the greatest generation, you know, a lot of them weren't raised to be, uh, you know, that kind of an affectionate father. And it was sort of like when you reach a certain age as a boy, you know, dad's going to shake your hand. He's not going to hug you anymore. And, um, and not all dads are like that. And, you know, so there are dads who are very affectionate and very affirming of their sons. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, it is a wound and, uh, it doesn't always get healed. It doesn't get healed in the story I tell, you know, the, the biblical story of Judah, who was Jacob's fourth son, it doesn't, it doesn't get, it doesn't get healed. Um, but what God does in that, with that wound and in that story is, um, I think breathtaking, um, you know, that, and, and we've, and we miss him because the, the Joseph story is so gripping, um, that, you know, when, when Judah's story pops up in the middle, it's, it's aggravating, <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite stories in the whole Old Testament. And I just, I love him, you know, and the, it, it, it's hard for me to read his story without weeping <laughs> at the transformation that takes place in him. So, yeah. And I've read a couple commentators, a few, not a ton, talk really helpfully about that. The kind of intersection of the story of Judah in the Joseph thing, but I've never read someone with quite your take on it. Mm. I mean, that was really insightful. I mean, do you want to say just a, something quick about it or you mean what what his father wound was yeah because i've never heard someone talk about that yeah well according to patriarchy the firstborn son is like the crown prince and so that would have been reuben and but he was the son of the of leah and rachel was jacob's favorite wife i mean he plays favorites with his wife with his wives and with his sons so when he, when she, when Rachel has a son who's number 11, the 11th son, and Jacob showers him with all these honors and attentions that should go to the firstborn, you know, it creates all sorts of hostility in the family. And, um, and I wonder, and I don't have any way of proving this, but I wonder if because Reuben disqualified himself by having sex with his father's um, concubine, it was his fourth, one of his um, extra wives. Um, and the other. That's the best translation of concubine I've ever heard. For all you out there that aren't, don't have a theological lexicon, that's just extra wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Reuben gets disqualified, I think. And then the, the next two sons, um, Simeon and Levi, uh, do this honor killing. Um, which J Jacob says, you've made me stink in the, you know, in the local world that makes 
Judah number four, which makes me wonder if he didn't feel like he was the one entitled to that special place. But he, um, you know, he's clearly the leader in the family and um, leads in the trafficking of his brother. Uh, you know, it's it's a terrible story. It's, you know, they're, he would be a felon <laughs> in today's world. Um, but I think, you know, he's just driven by that. He's watched his father, you know, play favorites uh, and, and wound his mother over it. And it's, an, it's a very uh, flagrant favoritism that takes place in that family. And, um, yeah, so he's an angry young man. You know, it really, it strikes me that probably one of the most important things we can do uh, in helping our people be good fathers is have them not read Genesis ever. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> there is one lousy dad after another yeah. in the book of Genesis. Or um, it could be like his Seinfeld, where George decides his life improvement plan is going to be to do the opposite. Whatever Abraham, <laughs> yeah. Whatever <laughs> Abraham does. Just do the opposite. Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Died. Yeah. Well, and in and, and, and fair disclosure, I'm a father of four sons. So I <laughs> I think I produced four sensitive barbarians. So I think we kind of uh, did the best we could. But um, one of the things I, I remember, and I won't go, I don't want to take too much time with the story, but long and short of that, I was in graduate school and sitting at a table and uh, one of uh, one woman, a graduate student came up was furious at, at her interaction with a particular dean. And she goes, when we take over, he's the first one we're hanging. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I, and I was in a particular brave or stupid uh, mood. And I said, well, you know, the problem isn't patriarchy. The problem is archy. In other words, the problem is not so the maleness. It's, it's, it's the problem of, of power mm. and maybe, maybe the misuse of power. In some levels, you know, how would you... How would you say the fact that particularly where there's been officially male dominated churches, uh, what that kind of power, how has that corrupted, you know, your average conservative congregation? Well, I, th I think for one thing, it's, it's given, it's caused us to, to, um, give credence to everything that's said by that person instead of having, uh, the freedom to engage. You know, it, it's always dangerous. You know, when I, when I go do Q&A with people and I'm not a pastor of a big church or anything, but, you know, when, you, when you're when you allowed to, to stand with the microphone, um, you get, you have a credibility that, you know, is, is, a, is a dangerous thing. And, you know, people will ask me questions that are litmus test kinds of questions, you know, that are to determine if I'm safe or not. And, and, and the answer to that question is I'm not safe. Nobody's safe, you know, and I think the power that we give, um, leaders in, in evangelical circles, whether they're in churches or not, you know, pastors or not is, is dangerous for them. And it's dangerous for us. Um, cause, cause we need to think and we need to, um, you know, be responsible listeners. And so, you know, I think, I think there's that. I also think, and I talk about it this way in the book, when I talk about the power of power, that power is a gift and we all have aspects of it. 
Um, and it can be used in wonderful ways to empower others. I mean, if, if you look at the Genesis 1 to see how God uses his power, it's to empower. It's to cause flourishing. Um, you know, it's, 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 and we're supposed to emulate that. So when it becomes about me, when it becomes about my empire, whatever, however large or small that may be, um, it's, it's a being abused and, you know, we don't have good, um, checks and balances in the evangelical world. We give loud voice to a lot of people and, um, you know, it, it, we need to have, we need to be thoughtful listeners. We just do. You know, one of the things about the book I appreciate, I don't think I've ever read a book that deals with gender issues and power and patriarchy that actually actually it points in every chapter has almost a devotional quality as well. I mean, there were moments as I was reading it and, uh, and I, was, I was sort of flipping between the audible book and, you know, so I start listening when I'm walking the dogs and I pick the book up, the regular work. So and I'm just, I, I, I was there, I was deeply moved at, at several points in the book. So I, I really want to commend you on that. that mm. It's it, that I've it, again, it's a unique literary style that is really encouraging. And the other, the other thing I just I want to say by way of compliment, uh, when I pick, I mean, I, I'm gonna married. My wife works full time. Uh, we have a very egalitarian marriage. Our church, you know, we have a female pastor. We have female leaders. So on one level, I'm thinking, okay, you know, this is a book for people who aren't in these situations. Then I'm reading it. I didn't realize how how how, uh, how trapped some of the patriarchy still makes me feel it's it, it and my wife too on, on some levels i mean it just negotiating things you might be in a church that again ordains women or something but you really do a good job of describing the complexity of the maelstrom you know wherever you are in your social location yeah i th i think it affects all of us um you know i quote david fitch in my book where he says you know, the, the complementarians, uh, you know, believe in this higher, hierarchical system. Um, but the egalitarians accept that system. They just want to invite women into it. You know, it's, so it's, we're not thinking beyond. That's why I think neither, neither group goes far enough in, in how they talk about, you know, what is the gospel? How does the gospel change us? And, and I'm glad it is inspiring because, you know, I, I think the stories I tell of men in the Bible, I, I love those men. I mean, they're just incredible examples of a completely different way of living um, that, you know, has been very moving to me. But also the, the stories I tell of, of, of contemporary, you know, men in contemporaries culture and you know there just been, have are some extraordinary examples that we see of you know a really otherworldly um jesus gospel way of living and um yeah so i'm glad that is encouraging to me to hear that well we appreciate your work in helping us redeem every part of us including our maleness not only in relationship with uh, our sisters, but also with ourselves. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. You took on diesel.
Make a living. 